Welcome to another episode of With Open Mouths, the podcast. I'm your host, Conita Lilla. Today we speak with Otonia Gillian Okot Bittek, who is a multi-award winning Acholi poet. Her 100 Days is a book of poetry that reflects on the meaning of memory two decades after the Rwandan genocide. A's for Acholi, her most recent poetry collection, is out now from Walsack and Wynn. Julianne is currently Assistant Professor of Black Creativity at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, which occupies the lands of an Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee people. In this episode, we find out about the transnational roots and remnants of memory and of bearing witness and the urgency of the creative project. Thank you, Julie, for meeting me today. And thank you for coming here and sharing with us. Thanks, Kanita. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, can we start off by um, thinking about what led you to choose writing poetry and storytelling as your creative practice? I used to say that I ended up here because I sucked at everything else. And it's possibly true that I've tried, possibly true, it's factually true, that I've tried so many different things and so many different jobs and and attempted at different skills. And uh, it's storytelling and poetry that has worked out for me and teaching. So I guess I've, it's just taken a long time to get to myself. Um, what other things did you do? I worked at an alarm monitoring station once. And alarm? Th- like house alarm? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I thought that it was an important job for me that made me feel like I, I could attend to people's emergencies and stay calm. And <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah. Did not work out. <laughs> but it did not work out, not because I didn't want to do it. It was also hard on the body. It was four days on, four days off, and then four nights and four days. So um, it, it was a dizzying time. And I also had a small child. So much as I liked the job, um, the the job situation did not fit a young mom. Mm. So if your kid is sick, you can't stay away from work. You have to organize for someone else to stay at home with your sick kid. Mm. So that didn't seem right. Um, so, so that's an example of a... a, a a job, uh, a way of living that I wanted to do, but could not work for me, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I, and I've also always just really enjoyed being inside a story, especially when someone else is telling it. Mm-hmm. I, I love looking at how stories work, um, movies, novels, literary study, um, us, how we are in the world. We are always inside a story, right? Mm-hmm. So it just seems like coming back home. Mm. Yeah. That's interesting. But who were the people that helped to shape you and helped to kind of guide you along this path? Everybody. Um, I, I think the distinct names 
and specific times, but really, truly everybody. Um, to think about, for instance, growing up in a home where storytelling was always in the air, right? Mm. Um, surrounded by books and both mom and dad tell stories and we had lots of visitors always coming in and out of the house. So um, storytelling as a f way of being in the world has always just been there. Mm. Um, but along the way, I've also had uh, instructors who have guided me to recognize that what I was doing was fine. So it wasn't just a hobby or something to um, to to do on the side while you're doing real work. It, I came to understand it as real work. Um, I have a parent who was a writer. He's not alive anymore. And he was in the business of poetry and storytelling and teaching. So I didn't have to be told that it's a way that one could live. Mm. I just didn't understand yet that it was a way that I could live too. Right? Mm. Um, I've had, right now the, the name that comes to mind is Barbara Bins. Barbara Bins was an instructor at Langara College in Vancouver. She's retired now. And uh, I used to work at the print shop in, at Langara College. And she'd come and say, tell me every so often, she says, I'm not retiring until you go back to school. Wow. So I decided to go back to school so she would stop telling me that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went and did a master's degree in English, and then I did a PhD. Um, another name that comes to mind is Erin Baines, who told me um, she'd hired me to do some work on storytelling. And she told me, this work could be a PhD thesis. Why don't mm. you just apply for a PhD, right? Mm. And so she sh walked me through the process. Um, another person that comes to mind is Pilar Riano Alcala, professor at UBC. Um, I took a class on memory with her. And that class just to this day still reverberates in my brain mm. because she, I, I learned in that class that storytelling mem and memory are political. Mm. So it's not something we take for granted, right? Um, and that has really shaped how I position myself when I write or think. Mm. Yeah, so so there's three names, I suppose, but really everybody. Yeah, yeah. but um, during this time, were you always writing? Were you writing, were you writing you know, like on scraps of paper, like when you're doing other things, like, you know, how did it, how did you get it out? How did you? Um, when I was very young, 11, um, I got my first poem published. Mm -hmm. And it was, it, it feels now almost like a fluke, but I wrote a poem um, and my dad loved it so much he was telling his friends about it. And then one day he said, we're going to the newspaper. And then we went to the newspaper and he told the editor, you have to publish this work. Wow. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> but then I did think about writing as something that I must do. Hmm. Um, I was generally good at English composition, like many people are, right? Um, but writing in my early 20s, not so much, just the usual writing in your diary kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but I always read a lot. I think I was reading more than I was writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And and when you were young, did, were you schooled in English? Like, was English your first language at school? Yeah, yeah. Um, I went to school in Kenya and then in Uganda, both former British colonies. Mm. So, yes, English was the lingua franca. Um, in Kenya, also Swahili is a lingua franca. Um, but, so, yeah, I've always spoken English. And in your home, was it like... Did people speak English or yeah. did your parents speak English to each other? And No, my parents always spoke Acholi to each other. Mm. They're both Acholi from northern Uganda. Mm. And um, when my sister was born in United States, my parents were in the United States. I suppose I was there too. Um, and <laughs> my mom told me, tells me I had the cutest American accent. <laughs> it's not there anymore, yeah. thankfully. <laughs> but I've spoken English all my life. Um, and we... Our parents didn't always speak to us in Acholi, but we picked, I shouldn't say we picked it up because I, I guess they taught us somehow, mm. but it wasn't the language around us when we were growing up because we grew up in exile. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's interesting because my parents always spoke Afrikaans to mm. each other and to the rest of the family, but spoke English to us. Huh. So we were surrounded by this other language that um, was actually, it's called Combase, hmm. Combase Tal, which is translated as kitchen language. Right. So that's where it um, originated from, like kitchens mm-hmm. and kitchen staff. Like my grandmother spoke Combase. Mm-hmm. It's, um, and it was a language that was then like appropriated into like Afrikaans, Stava Afrikaans, which is like pure um, and kind of amalgamated with Dutch and German mm. and then kind of um, put into a dictionary, an Afrikaans dictionary used by the apartheid state. What? Yes. So it's, and it's, it's, its origins are in the Combase. Wow. wow. You know, like in the kitchen. That makes me think of Kisheng. And Kisheng is um, a language that young people made up when I was a kid in Kenya. I think that it was about that time. I could mm-hmm. be wrong, but it was about that time when kids did not want their parents to know what they were saying. So it's a mixture between Kiswahili and English, and it's uh, Kisheng. And then um, uh, I, I didn't become an adult in Kenya, but since being away, I've come to understand that Sheng is a language that's spoken everywhere. Wow. Right? So it's not pure Swahili, mm. and it's not English either. Yes. But it's both. But it's and like if you a don't, mix. Yeah, and if you don't know, you don't know. Even if you might know English mm. and you might know Swahili, it can es- completely yes. escape you, right? Yes, 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 yes. Uh, it's very similar. Mm-hmm. And also the the kind of liveliness of the language is totally different. <laughs> like you can't express things in any other language, in any other way. Um, and so it was sad for me growing up kind of feeling that, you know, I can't speak it or, you know, Mm -hmm. I shouldn't speak it because it's also associated with like a lower class and um, being like uneducated and, yeah. So my grandmother spoke English to us, which was weird. It was so (laughs) weird because she couldn't, she, it it always felt like like an adopted uh, language, yeah. So I was just interested to think about... Yeah, like whether you were surrounded by another language and, you know, especially um, having like 
been in exile, mm-hmm. you know, what your relationship was like to your mother, mother tongue. Mm-hmm. I remember once my grandmother came to visit us in Nairobi. She lived in Gulu in northern Uganda. And she didn't speak very much English, but she spoke some. She spoke some. So he, he, like everybody else does, speak more than one language. And here she was trying to communicate with us, and we were mostly speaking English, right? And I remember this distinct time when she was telling us how to make a mosquito nest. And I thought... First off, why are we making nests for mosquitoes? And she had she she illustrated to us it was kind of like um a weaving of of grass. Mm-hmm. So she and then she said, Now you try, now you try. And and we were making these and they were very pretty. And I thought about it for a long time. Why would people make nests for mosquitoes? And it occurred to me about ten years ago, long after she's gone that she meant nets, N-E-T-S. Oh. oh, yeah. Right? Yes. And then it. I tried to get some grasses between my hands so I could remember. The memory is gone from my fingers of how to mm-hmm. make mosquito nets. Um, but then now I have the knowledge that there was an actually practice mm. of making mosquito nets which I didn't understand all these years because I thought she was saying nest, nest, right? Wow. I've tried to look for that information. I can't find it anywhere. But of course we would have been making mosquito nets, Mm. right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing how, like, generations communicate with younger generations Mm -hmm. and how we feel that um, we understand. We understand, like, a sadness because we can see stress in, like, adults, you know, that they're they're trying to make a connection, Mm -hmm. but it's, um, and they have to think of new ways of doing it because they don't have, they don't have, like, the language. They Mm -hmm. don't have that. Mm the same grandmother, I introduced her to my children, so they were speaking across four generations. And my kids have zero acholi. And she, I was acting as the translator between my kids and their great-grandmother, mm. which was very weird and a bit sad. Mm. But at least there was a language, well, there was at least two languages that they could communicating mm. right but much of the time was spent of um she looking at them and they kind of stealing glances at her mm. understanding that this is a great grandmother um but there was not much else yeah yeah but they were very young uh six and ten i think at the time mm. oh, no no four and four and ten yeah wow but I think that's powerful and like important, even though it's difficult. Yeah, it's, and that they had it. Yes, 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 yes. And they know, you know, and they they understand, you know, these are our connections and our, our people, mm-hmm. especially when they kind of, um, you know, also like in exile, also away, away, right. you know, right. kind of free-floating. Yeah. I mean, they know that their grandmother... Had a mom too, right? Mm. Everyone has a mom, that yes. kind of thinking. Yes. Um, which is a bit different from us not growing up at home. Well, my kids didn't grow up at home, but at least but they met their great-grandmother. And I, I knew that my grandmother, that same grandmother, 
Her oldest brother was called Adam. And for the longest time, I thought that Adam, because he was very old in my head, mm. was the biblical Adam. Oh, <laughs> the so, first man. Oh, yeah. So you know how you can trace your family back to the biblical Adam? Yes. Oh, yeah. For, for me, it was obvious. That was my <laughs> grandmother's brother, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was very rude to find out that it's actually not. Yeah. It's okay. It's not even my tradition, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, but, like, would you say that a lot of your, like, practice is based on the idea of, like, movement and journeys and change? Would you say that, or would you say this um, kind of, movement even because even like when you talk just generally like mm. every day it's it's kind of about different places like you, like in your mind you know mm. you you don't even like acknowledge that you know this is what happened there and this is what happened here or you know but it's kind of all together it's all like in forms that's so yeah. interesting kanita um for a long time i used to struggle with the idea of belonging and i used to yearn for an idea of home. Um, I wish I could belong somewhere. I wish there was a place I could call home, that kind mm. of thing. Not so much anymore. Um, but I was thinking, which is, which is quite different from what you're saying, I was thinking that it's because I tried to spend time in the moment that I can't do anything about having grown up in exile. I can't do anything about not having grown up at home or the fact that any place I've lived in, the question always arises, where do you come from? And that includes when I go to Uganda, when I go to Acholi, invariably someone will say, where are you from, right? So now I've come to understand myself as the perpetual stranger. And so, um, the need to belong is not so strong, but I think it gives me an added way of observing what's around me because I can't take it for granted because it's not mine, mm -hmm. right? So I like to think that um, um, and I'm an observer, even though my eyesight's not very good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's interesting that you should say that that way. Yeah, I, I um, like that idea of home is very... It's very interesting because, like, on the way here, um, like, walking here, I saw a banner mm. in front of, like, one of the halls and it said, welcome home because of homecoming. Yes. So I kind of thought, like, what is, what does this mean? Like, you know, they're, they're kind of welcoming, like, a transitory community, you know, other <laughs> students who <laughs> kind of come. Um, and have I ever felt this way about any place um, and and I think you know uh, that's why I'm so drawn back to perhaps kind of younger childhood memories because I had like family and th you know mm. grounded kind of presences mm -hmm. um, but then when I chose to leave and chose to go elsewhere um, and when I came back it's completely like that space and that place is different right it has moved on without you it has it has and I think that definitely affects um, your sense of home, you know, as being a place. Yeah. Yeah. So 
home becomes defined by time rather than landscape. Yes. I'll read for you a poem. Yes. These days, like loose threads, like untied laces, like frayed edges, like tenuous connections, days like remembrances, days like bits we can only access if we're to survive, days that are untenable, palpable, days pulsating through that prominent vein on your temple, days like memories you can't hold on to, like last Tuesday, which means nothing at all, except that there was last Tuesday. There was a Tuesday last week. <laughs> and that's, that's an alphabet for the unsettled. What does it mean to have like an alphabet for the unsettled? If we don't have like a language, if we don't have a language, what does it mean to have an alphabet? I think an alphabet for me is an established code. And those who are unsettled, how can they have an established code? People said settlers were anybody but the indigenous people of these lands. And then I heard it being complicated by those who said, well, those who were stolen and brought to these lands can't be called settlers because they did not come to settle. Mm. And then I heard it said that those who claim settlerness, settledom, (laughs) those who claim to be settlers, right, are perhaps using the word to establish themselves vis-a-vis the First Nations people and then think to think about their responsibility for being here. All those different ways of thinking about the word settler, I have never been able to be comfortable to think about it. And given a history of Canada and the presence of Canada, it's hard to be settled and to call myself a settler because mm-hmm. I think that it makes me... I think if I call myself a settler, somebody who settles, it's someone who makes peace with what is. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to make things peace with what is because these are complicated and difficult times. Mm-hmm. So I can't be settled. But also just, um, it's kind of like negating movement, you know, like you like physically, but also emotionally and psychically and spiritually. Um, it's kind of like we, you know, we, we sit. Yes. We squat. Yes. We're not going anywhere anymore, yeah. right? Mm. Um, and so if you're unsettled, you should be thinking about the next move, movement. Mm. Or think about what to do about what's unsettling you. Mm. So I think to be unsettled is not a terrible thing after all. Mm. No, I, I think it's, 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 it's a lived reality mm. um, for most of us, I think to be like in in between spaces, in between things, even like in in, in your daily life, Mm -hmm. you know. um, You're never exactly in one place because you're thinking of the things that are moving in your life, like, Mm -hmm. you know, home life and work life and all these things Mm -hmm. moving. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is, I mean, we do, yeah, I, I think it's, about like finding peace in unsettlement, peace in that. 
Yeah, it's also activating. So what are you going to do about it if you're unsettled? What what are your responsibilities if you're unsettled to find peace or to create peace? It means you can't just squat mm. in a place. But then in a in a week that we're thinking about homecoming, those for whom Queens is a place to come home to, what does it mean to settle into the tradition of homecoming? Yeah. Or traditions generally like to settle. And and also there's also, you know, when there is um, that kind of like somebody's coming home, there's always somebody who's not welcome. Right. So right. Who, who are all the people who have come who are not coming back for whatever reason? Who cannot come back? Huh. Who just, yeah, choose not to. Do you remember that you know, um, short story by Ursula K. Le Guin, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas? No. Oh, my goodness. That's a hell of a story. Um, and it's about, okay, I'm going to summarize it poorly so that I'm not giving away anything. Okay. Um, but it's a, about a settlement where everything is fine and the, and the settlement is called Omelas. But there's some people every year who walk away from this place. So, and that's, and there are few. It's kind of, she writes as if it doesn't matter, right? Mm. There are few people who walk away from this settlement. But the title of the piece is called Those Who Walk Away from Omelas. So what does it mean to walk away from a place of settlement? Right? That story mm-hmm. sits on my head. Every few days I think about it. Wow. Right? <laughs> that means a lot. I'm going to be reading it. <laughs> it's a very short story, but it's also very, very yeah. good. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I find that, you know, alongside this like sense of like looking at um, belonging and settlement and home, your work is very playful. Hmm. It's light, you know, it's got this like quality of being able to, um, you know, move language in a way that is like unpredictable and, and you know, the way that you use like repetition or the, the way that you move words, shift words, like where does, what kind of place does that like playfulness come from? The quick answer that comes to my head right away, and I know this is not an exam. Yeah. It's not an exam. <laughs> so I don't have to have the right answer. Is um, uh, folk tales that we all grew up with, mm. right? Where there's always a trickster. Mm. Uh, to think for many people, Anansi, the, the spider. For us in our tradition, it's the hare, right? I don't know what it would be. What is it for your tradition? Do you have a trickster image or mm. animal or something like that? No, we just like borrowed from like Grimm, yeah. his fairy tales and um, Shakespeare. Yeah. Those kinds of, yeah. Yeah. On the West Coast where I lived for a long time, it was the raven. Right? Mm. So um, life can be very, very serious, very, very hard. But those characters are always playing tricks to get us to see something else. Mm-hmm. Right? So... Given that 
our lives can be so complicated. And given that we have several kinds of media and literatures to get us to see how hard life is and how complicated it is, as if we don't know. Hmm. Um, what can I do in my writing that helps people to see the glint differently? Hmm. Right? So it's still, it's still possible to write about very hard things and not focus on the very, very hardness of it. Mm. Right? And, and I think one of the things that repetition, for example, does is to lull us. You draw somebody in and they know what to expect because of the repetition. And while the thing is being rep repetitioned, <laughs> thing, whatever it is is being repeated, then you can insert something else. Yeah? Mm. So let me read for your poem, since we're talking about resettlement and repetition. This is called Resettlement. Resettling officer, one who helps you fill out forms, one who helps you resettle, one who knows social services, one who knows court appearances. Fold up the sheets from the clothesline, hold them up to your fate, hold them up to your face, hold them up to the sky, hold them up to the tree, Hold them up to the sound of playing children. Hold them up to the bills. Hold them up to the calendar. Hold them up to the stove. Hold them up against the dusty windowsill. He's not coming, the resettlement officer says. Settle in. Wow. <laughs> that's, like, that's one of those poems in, in this book that I said is... It's like hard hitting. It's hard hitting because the form is light. Mm -hmm. So it feels like you are folding laundry. Mm -hmm. You're folding it, but you're finding things. You're finding things in the pockets. Mm -hmm. You're finding things that are opening up, you know, like the narrative and it's opening up. Um, that image of laundry is so powerful because in Canada, we cannot hang our washing on a clothesline. Well, it depends on the house you live in. I, I guess you're <laughs> right. I, I, I guess. Mm -hmm. I guess. I guess people live without dryers. People live without heating. Mm -hmm. Pe people do, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that... In our spaces, and, and I think that's what is so like unnerving and kind of unsettling, is that um, there are these spaces that feel generic and feel homogenous, and you know, but there is a different kind of apartheid yeah. that exists in other spaces, like outside the ones that I exist in. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, so I always used to, that was my thing every day almost every day, used to hang the washing on the line. Mm. Um, and there's something very special about the smell of like sunshine in your clothes. Yes. There's not, you yes. can't get that. No, you can't. Um, not artificially. Well, not as far as I know anyway. N no, but it does. It kind of, it actually like gives life to your clothes um, and your towels and just to smell that and mm. kind of feel like, um, you can smell the place that you're in. Right. You can smell it. And suddenly, like, I come here and I cannot smell it. Mm -hmm. And it feels like, you know, like a sense has been, like, taken away 
Um, you know, for many years I used to think, is it the same sun under which we live? I don't think Because I, I used to think the sun was very hot. And if there was a cloudless sky, the sun would be hot. Mm. And now I've lived in place in Canada for, mm, it was 2022. I've lived for 32 years in Canada. Wow. And now I know that you can have a sunny day where it's like the sun is low battery or something. There's no <laughs> heat to it. Yeah. It just, it's like a picture in the sky. Yeah, I think it, 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 it like hits the earth or hits where we are in a like different angle or something. Still, it's the most it's powerful thing in our yeah. solar system and it I cannot know. penetrate the I can't come. I can't come here. Oh. I can't. It can't. But then think about the the technologies and ways of people who have been here for time immemorial and how they figured it out, mm. right? Yeah, that is mind-blowing to me. To me, that, like, yeah, people with brown skin could live here <laughs> is, is like, for time immemorial yeah, yeah. is, like, completely, completely mind-blowing, completely. And they have... And yes, do. yes, yes. And I think, I mean, I'd, like I'd really like to um, talk about that, you know, like how if like indigenous practice here, like on Turtle Island speaks to like how you how you work and your own practice and your own writing. I'm going to return to that. But first, let me read for you a poem called There's Something About Vancouver because I lived there for a long time. You had to do this. I did have to do this. Yes. And this is a poem I'm wanting to kind of illustrate that um, I write about what I observe. And so then it helps me to establish myself like an orientation. This is where I am. And from here, this place where I am, what, who am I? Um, with who can I have solidarity? Then I'll return to talk about... Okay. Yeah, okay. There's something about Vancouver. Um, before I read it, I just want to say that this is not specific to Vancouver, so it could be anywhere else in Canada. There's something about Vancouver, something about freedom, something about dignity, about being a woman today, and about how a good education will save you. Something about God, prayer, faith, about the strong traditions of your people, about African culture and black girl magic, about black pride like, you know, be proud of yourself. Something about the importance of economy, about working hard, about capital, Something about shadow, about colonialism, about our aboriginals, about our First Nations people, about ours, 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 ours. There's something about that meme floating about online that spreads the romance of African people who learn each other's songs and use them to fend off evil that has been beautifully packaged as Ubuntu. And of course, of course, the entire world singing Bob Marley's One Love, One Heart, Let's Get Together and Feel All Right. 
is something about the language of belonging, about memory, justice, healing, about opportunities to begin again in a new country. There's something about welcoming refugees, about the Quebec minister of something, something, telling us that women should not wear the hijab because wearing the hijab means women are not free to wear what they want. So women must not be told what to wear because they're free to wear what they want, but not the hijab because she says so. There's something about how face coverings are now required, something about those face coverings or masks or whatever language is in vogue is a declaration of care for you, for me, of you, for you. Something about being together in this country that is, is as white as Diana Claxton's Buffalo Bone China and as old as old stock Canadians. And for sure, for real, there's something about Buddy. Something about Buddy riding a bike towards me those two weeks ago on Main and First. Something about the way Buddy gets off his bike and addresses me directly about not belonging here. And I'm all, what? Because I think I miss here. And Buddy's, you don't belong here. You're a... And without hesitation, I know that this is an asshole move. And I call it for what it is. And I'm, you're an asshole. And Buddy is, you're a... And you're an asshole. And Buddy is two steps away from me, and I can smell all of last week on Buddy, but I stand, my goddamn stand, as Buddy holds onto a bike that's mute, and we are a vortex around which Vancouver spins. And traffic whirls on, and pedestrians walk on by, as Buddy and I scream at each other, and I turn as Buddy walks away with a bike, a reluctance witness. And Buddy hurls the word at me, this time with no pronoun, just file, just bile. And I'm screaming back, asshole, asshole, asshole. And I have the last word, and I turn to keep my way. And two women's eyes meet mine and look away. So there's something about chill, something about it's not so bad, something about could have been way worse, something about maybe drunk, maybe med mental illness, maybe stress, maybe, you know, the usual. Something about citizenship, about freedom to be whoever you want to be today, about dignity and taking the high road, about privilege and family and good friends and continuous and never-ending Hail Marys. And something about my girlfriend who tells me, swear to God, I can walk with you to the police station right now and report this. And there's something about, I can't believe this kind of shit still happens in Vancouver today. Oh my God, are you all right? And the sea to sky highway and the so-called superiority of Western culture and economy and capital and opportunity and hard work and forgiveness and generosity. And something about, if it's so, so bad, why don't you go back to whatever hellhole you came from? But mostly gratitude. Gratitude for the ancestral makeup of skin, of this skin that holds me in, and this skin that keeps me together, this skin that keeps me whole. Thanks, <laughs> Carita. 
wow, that is a bomb. <laughs> that is a bomb. Seriously. Yeah. I didn't know if you wanted to go back to Buddy. I didn't. I didn't know if you wanted to go back uh, to Buddy, but that uh, the makeup that is my skin mm-hmm. and uh, drawing like power from that, mm-hmm. where it was actually the thing that drew out vileness and hostility from this other human being. Mm-hmm. It, how, I, I cannot fathom, like how you, how you made that shift, like how did you find strength, power in that very thing, in that moment? Um, it's, it's just, it's phenomenal that, that, that is, I mean, besides like the obvious fact that this thing of such beauty and such resonance and such um, familiarity that will echo across generations, people will read this and, 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 and find, you know, their solidarity and their, their kind of um, their voice through this. They'll, they'll understand, they'll understand that deep connection besides that. You know, how, how did that, how did you, how did you make that? Well, the thing is, there's nothing unique about this story. And this buddy coming up to me without any kind of reason. He just, I guess, saw me and thought, hmm, I can be an asshole to this woman, right? And, but that decision, I imagine, comes from all those stories he has heard about people like me. And he attempted to reduce me to a derogatory word. And I know that I am made of many more stories than what this person might have known about black women, black people. And uh, I also understood, you know how I was saying, there's something about all these other things happening in the news and and COVID and care and love and and hard work and religion, how those things are supposed to protect us and we're supposed to be able to rely on them, the police, you know. Um, but in that moment, even the fact of witnesses, of people seeing and hearing, but they don't come to your aid, all of that seems to be um, a moment to to reduce you to nothing. But you are not nothing. You are made of so many stories that have been told not just to you, but to other people across the world. And you're so much better connected. And so why should this stranger reduce you to nothing? Right? Um, But I was also having to work my way through a lot of anger. I was so angry when this man did this thing. and yet I could see right through the well-meaning friends who came, who listened to me and mm. wanted to do something. And I also was very clear that even if something was done, if Buddy was stopped and said, and I've had a finger pointed at him and told, you can't talk to people like that, mm. that would be one moment. Next week, would it stop him from talking to somebody like that? Mm. Who knows? If it did, good. But would it stop? people across
across the world mm. from talking to people like that? Probably not, mm. right? So I was thinking about how structures and stories um, are designed to make us feel one way or another about who we are. But the fact is, and this is undeniable, is that we have survived through centuries and here we still are, right? no matter what those stories have been, right? So that's really what I wanted to get at with that poem. And so if I had to return about to solidarities with indigenous people, um, I have friends and I have colleagues who, with whom I do collaborations with. Um, is um, a particular friend, let me just say a particular friend, Peter Morin, who we've been friends for a long time. And through luck, extreme luck and opportunities, um, he has come to my home in northern Uganda. So he knows me from home, from where my great-grandparents are buried, you know? <laughs> he's been to there. Um, and I have seen him. He's, he's a professor at uh, OCAD University in Toronto. I have seen his performances over time and seen him singing and performing and challenging what it means to live in these stories um, and also invoking the voices on the land of his ancestors right, to challenge um, this colonial legacy that we live in. And he has also seen my work. So we walk, we talk together, we walk together, we write letters to each other, right? What does it mean to be us in solidarity against the power structures that seeks to destroy us? Um, so he's, he's one of, he's, he's one of, um, uh, uh, well, he has also helped me to see that to be in this country, I have to think about what my contributions are to the people here. Mm -hmm. And not in a, I'm a good human kind of way and I'm here to help to save you, mm -hmm. but it, how and what can I do with you together? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I take that seriously enough that in the course that I'm teaching right now, it's a, co it's a black 280, that's the, the code for it. And it's a course called African Literature on These Indigenous Lands. And so it brings together um, work by African writers and artists and puts them in dialogue with indigenous writers and artists mm. so that the conversation, there are conversations to be had. And so when my students now can talk about African literature, they can also talk about indigenous literature. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really important, mm -hmm. that kind of connection, because there are many synergies, there are yes. many uh, things that like talk to each other. I'm mm. just thinking about the um, indigenous ancestors at Agnes yes. and the African ancestors and how they they literally, I believe, draw power from each other because of their proximity. Yes. Um, you know, in, in a place that would otherwise be hostile. They are together and they are, you know, making those, um, yeah, it's, it's making the place more livable, more generative. Yes. And they also mm. share a history of uh, 
structures that brought them together, mm. right? Um, so it's not by accident that they share that space. Yes, But in yes. sharing that space, all of these other things happen too. Mm. It's powerful to me that um, that collection is also in the basement of, of Agnes, mm. which tells me that they are literally the foundation for the yes for the gallery yeah 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 it's interesting because most people think of like basement as like under subterraneous underneath you know um but kind of neglect to think of it as a foundation it is like the foundation that everything is kind of built up Mm -hmm. on Mm -hmm. yeah and it's having those uh the works from from those traditions and the traditions suggesting that there's one of each, but mm. the many African traditions and the many indigenous traditions to say that when we, when I am at, at Agnes and I'm witnessing or seeing, observing uh, in the space, I'm always aware of who's holding up this space. Mm. And I'm thinking about it in a psychic kind of way, but also physically, if this works since those works are made by people, it is the power and the talent and and the labor of African and indigenous people who are holding up the building. Mm. Yes, and when you go there and visit it, you can feel it. Yes, you can. You can feel that power. Mm-hmm. You can feel the power. Mm-hmm. Julie, is it still true that if you didn't write and you didn't get it out, it would choke you, it would sit with you. I think so. I think so. I think so. I think so. I've, I've, I've had, had um, many times, times, many times, when I was not writing. writing. And it always comes back to me in a very powerful way, way, almost like a threat. threat. Mm-hmm. And I've had, had a sense of worthlessness, like, I cannot speak. If I'm not writing, my words get lost. Wow. So it's not like a catharsis, mm. but it's a practice of working out. It's not catharsis, oh my God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a way of me um, it's a way of me trying to make sense of something that should not be made sense of. So it's a futile endeavor, but it's one that I do anyway. Um, I have sort of given in to the idea that I don't need to make sense of what doesn't make sense, mm. but I can illustrate it. Mm. So writing towards abstraction is something that I'm thinking about these days. So in this book, Ave is for Acholi, there's a section called um, excavating Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, three letters at a time. It's a phenomenal title. (laughs) Yes, it's completely, and it seems like completely impenetrable. Like it doesn't, you know, like you can't read. I I thought, okay, maybe it means like reading it in like three letters like that. And and I tried that. It works some of the time. But then also um, sometimes it's just kind of the sounds it's just the sounds. It's not actually literally the letters. It's 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 something else. It's something else. Um, and then, like, I was reading it, and I found a woman. And, and I remember from the story that um, 
I think it was Kurtz's lover, like black lover, who is this kind of antithesis of the proper lady. The white the the white fiancé. So there's a black lover and the white fiancé. Yes, who kind of reminds me of that porcelain that you also speak of. Um, And she is a woman who is wild. She is... um, passionate she is expressive she is hold difficult to hold down she kind of she flirts in and out of of the story you mm-hmm. know it's it's like you can't she's not like a whole character mm-hmm. but i found her there i found like you know and i found her even though the text was so it was chopped up it was split apart there were these like gaps huge gaps um she kind of lived there. It was the perfect place. Mm-hmm. That it was like the perfect place for her to reside in this broken up, you know, mm-hmm. um, space. And then you very you actually you 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 very um, benevolent. You're like a very benevolent writer. You're like caring. So you give it you give it to us eventually. Like if you kind of you know do the work a little bit, mm-hmm. you'll find her. Mm-hmm. You know she she kind of comes, you know she makes an appearance and then she walks like mm-hmm. she leaves, um, you know as she must. Uh, and it was just it was very powerful and and it was phenomenal. And then she kind of like transforms, and becomes almost like every woman. And you know, Julie, I see Julie in her too. I thanks thanks for reading that uh, work, Kanita, uh, and thinking about it. Uh, that section is uh, um, reflecting on a page from Heart of Darkness, and Heart of Darkness is such a powerful text. I think it's still studied as an iconic British text. Mm. It was written by Joseph Conrad, who was a Polish immigrant to uh, the UK, to Britain, and he spoke many languages, he was a seaman, um, and he was a writer. So I, Conrad is one of the people, I mean, we've got our genetic ancestors. He's one of my literary ancestors. Mm. Wow. And like my like genetic ancestors, you can't do anything about your genetic <laughs> ancestors. I cannot do anything about my literary ancestors, but I say, uh, I, I claim him because he's one of those people whose work I think about a lot. So he wrote Heart of Darkness based on a diary he was keeping when he himself went to the Congo. Mm. And his intention, it's been said, was to get his fellow Europeans to see the evils of colonialism in the Congo. Mm. So his his heart was in the right place. Mm. But the fact is he still could not see the people who were living there as people. Mm. And so in this one page, where he's writing about this African woman who is on her land with her ancestors. He doesn't even give her language. She doesn't speak. And she is the lover of the one, the main characters, Kurtz. Mm. How can she not speak, mm. right? Um, she is passionate and she's wild and wild apparition, mm. a gorgeous woman, but she doesn't speak. What nonsense is that? Mm. And so I came to understand Heart of Darkness as a book of nonsense. No matter what its intention is, no matter how beautifully it's written, no matter how um, Conrad 
distances himself from the unnamed narrator of the story so that it's not read to be as something that Conrad himself mm. wrote. Um, I call it a nonsense text because it has created a very powerful idea of how people think about Africa and Africans. Even the phrase heart of darkness is still used by journalists who fly in from wherever the hell they live in in the West and they go somewhere and they write a piece and in the piece invariably will be something about from the heart of darkness, mm. right? Mm. So how it is that people have come, whole peoples have come to be defined from the title of a text of a man who did not understand where he was. Mm. And so in this in this page, um, excavating heart, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, Three Letters at a Time, I decided to see what will this text look like if for every five letters I take out three letters in the middle, it will be the same text. Mm. Will it still make sense? Hopefully, no. And that is the rest of it. Mm. And just like that, I exorcised this man from my head. I don't think my future lineage <laughs> will be as haunted by Conrad as he has haunted me all these years. I needed to write back. Mm. Um, and, I, and I have. Yeah, I hope you, you did. And um, also not only write back, but like resuscitated yeah. something, you know, resuscitated a memory. Yes. Of a woman. Yes. Um, and and to to give space for that woman in the rest of this text. Yes. And bringing her forth like today. Mm -hmm. I think that's what I think that's what you did. Yeah. So not writing means that I will be choked by stories like Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Mm -hmm. Right? And how can we be choked? I mean, this buddy is still walking the streets accosting other people. Mm -hmm. Possibly. So I have to write. I don't have a choice. Well, thank you. Thank you for writing and thank you for sharing with us. Um, really, we, yeah, our lives are richer, seriously, because of these kinds of th this labor that is, it's tough. It's really, you know, it's, it's really tough. It's tough to read and it's, it's, it's your experience. It's, it's how you see the world um, and it's, Wonderful. It's wonderful. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Kanita. Thank you. Thank you for I our conversations. You, I love you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I hope we can. Well, I hope. What do I mean hope? <sighs> we will continue talking. Yes, we will. We yeah. will. I love Thank you, you, my friend. I love you too. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Oh, Julie. <laughs> that, oh. <laughs> that was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to With Open Mouths. Special thanks to our guest, Julianne Okot-Bitek, for speaking with us today. This podcast is hosted by myself, Konita Lela, and produced by Agnes Etherington Art Centre, in partnership with Queen's University's campus radio station, CFRC 101.9 FM. The music is composed by Jamil 3DN and produced by Elroy EC3 Cox III. Episodes of With Open Mouths are released monthly and you can find them on Digital Agnes, CFRC's website and on your favorite podcasting platform. 
If you like what you heard, leave us a review and subscribe now so that you don't miss a single episode. We'll see you next time. They wanted us in shade. They thought we would stay slaves.